1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. I'm Asha Brünings, first-time guest host of the podcast. I'm a professor in microbiology at Santa Fe College in Gainesville, Florida. Needless to say, anything I say here is my personal and professional opinion and not that of my employer. My educational background is in agronomy, plant molecular and cell biology, and plant pathology. My father was a cell biologist and immunologist at the Antondokom University of Suriname, where I grew up, and he taught me biology in general and immunology in particular before I could even talk. I also worked in his lab during school holidays. After my PhD, I was a postdoctoral scientist in Kevin Fonta's lab for four years, and nine years ago, I started teaching microbiology at Santa Fe College. Since then, I have also worked with a major textbook publisher on co-authoring and revising chapters in a microbiology textbook, especially those on microbiogenetics, recombinant DNA technology, and immunology. Today, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome my guest, Dr. Brianne Barker, on my very first time as podcast host. I've heard Dr. Barker so many times on one of my favorite podcasts this week in virology that I feel I know her personally. (laughs) <laughs> Dr. Mark, Dr. Mark, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, and you know, your educational background, your favorite color, where you work, what, and what your first thrill of is in scientific research? Yeah.
2: Um, so thank you so much for having me. Um, so I am currently a professor at Drew University, which is an undergraduate institution in New Jersey. Um, where I teach immunology, virology, and infectious disease-type courses. I've been interested in science for a very long time. Um, I was sort of always interested in science throughout high school and ended up going to Duke University as an undergraduate in order to study biology um, and also to cheer for our basketball team, um, which was a big part of my time. So if you really want to know my favorite color, it is, of course, Duke blue. <laughs> um, <laughs> And while I was there, I started doing immunology research, um, specifically looking at some immune responses to HIV vaccine candidates. I then went on to do a PhD in immunology at Harvard University, where, again, I was working on HIV vaccine candidates and specifically understanding um, the T cell memory response with vaccines. Um, It was really obvious to me that there were a few different parts of the immune system that worked together in order to make a good uh, vaccine elicited response, including um, the innate immune response. And so I did a postdoc at the University of North Carolina to understand um, some aspects of the innate immune system. Um, My PhD was with Dr. Norman Leppman. My postdoc was with Dr. Jenny Ting. Um, After my postdoc, I realized that I wanted to teach at a small liberal arts college. um, And I have been on the faculty at Drew University uh, ever since 2013. Cool. That's about the same time that I started. I guess I
1: started full-time in 2012 at Santa Fe College. So that's funny how the parallels. So thank you so much <laughs> for that. You look. It looks like you have an excellent background in immunology, which is exactly what I wanted you to hear. But, you know... Um, COVID-19, the disease that's caused by SARS-CoV-2 virus, has dominated our lives for so long now. And many of the discussions about it will will focus on the production of antibodies in those who protected the virus and nowadays in those who received the vaccine. However, in my humble opinion, the role of cellular immunity has not received as much attention. And this is one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you to flesh out that aspect a bit more. Can you very briefly explain to our audience the two parts of the body's immune
2: system, humoral and cellular immunity? Sure. So um, the humoral immune response mostly consists of antibodies, which are proteins secreted by a particular cell type. Um, And those proteins um, or antibodies have the ability to block different aspects of pathogen replication or uh, clear pathogens. Um, Alternatively, we have um, some cells uh, called T cells that are also able to interact not necessarily with the pathogens themselves, but with infected cells. Um, So that makes them pretty useful for dealing with virally infected cells. Um, There are a couple of different kinds, CD4 and CD8 cells, that vary in their function. Um, Both of them recognize uh, peptides that are made inside of infected cells and present it on the surface with a host protein called MHC that also kind of complicates this response a little bit and makes it a little harder to measure. Um, And those T cells might either act by killing the infected cells or by influencing um, other immune cells like B cells to make antibodies better or phagocytic cells to degrade things better or all sorts of different uh, Thank options. Thank you. And so in the summer,
1: there was some panic mainly in the media that research showed that recovered patients didn't have a lot of antibodies. And at the time, my own response was that, one, it is normal for the amount of antibodies to decrease over time after the disease, right? We don't want that immune system to be all the time. Um, And two, that the role of cellular immunity was ignored. So how important is the role of cellular immunity, particularly in, you know, in these kind
2: of intracellular pathogens like viruses? Um, So I am a bit biased as someone who has studied cellular immunity in viruses quite a bit. Um, But usually we think of the T-cell response as being really important in clearing viral infection um, once that viral infection uh, has been established in a host. Um, an antibody might be particularly useful in protecting you from your first infection and protecting you from that infection getting established. But those T cells are probably going to help you clear that viral infection.
1: Right. And we have
2: evidence since people are getting better,
1: that must mean that the virus is getting cleared and that their cellular immunity is functional and effective in doing that.
2: Exactly. Um, Unfortunately, Um, When we think about antibodies, antibodies are proteins that uh, come from cells and that are in the blood that we can pretty easily isolate, and we can use some biochemical assays to measure. Um, With cellular immunity, we actually need to look at the responses of cells. Um, We need to deal with that MHC protein and get peptides presented on MHC and then measure the cell's responses. And so there really aren't great rapid tests for measuring cellular immune responses, meaning that, at least in terms of the sort of rapid clinical diagnostics, we don't always get a picture of the cellular immune response. So people will say, oh, um, you know, this patient is or is not immune to SARS-CoV-2, and they're looking at antibodies and they're completely ignoring what might be happening with the cellular response. I feel like on TWIV, I spend a lot of time saying, but what about the T-cells? T-cells matter too. Right. But that was my
1: first response as well. And it's exactly the reason why you're here today. One thing that comes up very often is that, you know, we all know that people that are older are more likely to have severe COVID-19. And I wonder if that's related to the idea that we, you know, some of us who teach this know that um, T-cells originate like all immune cells in the bone marrow, but then they mature in the thymus, and that as you age, the thymus shrinks more and more and more. And the idea is is that does that mean that we're producing less T-cells? And is that potentially one of the reasons why older people are having a harder time?
2: Yes and no. So I don't think that sort of overall T cell numbers might be the, the biggest uh, contributor, but it turns out that there are a lot of different subtypes of T cells. Um, one of those subtypes is called the regulatory T cell. Um, and the regulatory T cell's job is to regulate. I know that's shocking. Uh, or sort of turn down um, some of the other aspects of immune responses. And it does seem like in older individuals, um, not only is the thymus generally producing uh, fewer T cells, but it is proportionally making fewer regulatory T cells. So the T cells that come out are less likely to be regulatory T cells. Um, Mm -hmm. And so um, if you look at the disease COVID 19, you see that there is sort of a lot of overactivation of immune responses. Um, A lot of patients who are just having kind of excess immunity. Um, excess immune responses, and a lack of regulatory T cells turning down immune responses could be a part of that disease state.
1: And also, you mentioned a few times on TWIV uh, this week in virology that there is some evidence that the virus may actually um, have an effect directly on the immune response. Um, Is there evidence that it affects both antibodies and T cells, or could you elaborate on that a bit?
2: Sure. So um, there are a few different pieces of evidence indicating that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is going to be able to actually actively inhibit immune responses. Um, One part of that is an inhibition in the cytokines that are made by the innate immune system. And so that may seem like totally different than what we're talking about today, which is the the B cells and T cells of the adaptive immune response. Um, But those cytokines actually turn on the B cells and the T cells. And so if um, the innate immune system is not making the proper response, the T cells are not going to get turned on correctly. Um, And so those those cytokines will affect your T cell response. Um, The other paper that has been um, pretty widely cited and that has been studied quite a bit is specifically looking at um, changes in a structure in the lymph node that is involved in antibody production called the germinal center, where B cells start to make good antibodies and develop into memory B cells who can make antibodies in the long term. It actually looks like um, what's happening there is that the T cells whose job it is to help the B cells, the T cells who make those B cells do a good job, get messed up by SARS-CoV-2. Um, And so in that case, yes, the T cells are getting affected and the downstream effect is a change in the um, antibody response. Other potential changes in the T cell response have not yet been examined, or at least not to my knowledge. Is that also
1: then one of the reasons, and um, I guess I know your answer to this because I've heard you speak to this before, um, but for our <laughs> audience, um, is that then one reason that it might be possible that immunization will give better protection against future infection than a um, than a real infection?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the two vaccines that are currently um under emergency use use authorization in the United States, um, both just contain the mRNA for the spike protein, one of many proteins from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And they induce immune responses against the spike protein. Um, There's uh, some interesting things to be said about antibodies versus T-cells there. Um, But uh, they specifically do not include... The, um, some of the other parts of the virus, which may be um, modifying the immune response and um, potentially inhibiting you from making an ideal response. So ideally, the vaccine won't have those inhibitory components.
1: I guess the other thing about sort of the new vaccine, um, I guess the more recent Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that's sort of on a relatively new platform. I say relatively new because I've been talking about nucleic acid vaccines since I started teaching as like the new up-and-coming thing, but that's been nine years, right? It's been the up-and-coming thing for nine years, <laughs> but for maybe the general public, you know, nucleic acid vaccines are, you know, they, they ha- there hasn't been a, a lot of uh, vaccines like that yet, so they're not used to it. So can you maybe just briefly explain the difference in between the traditional inactivated um, immunizations and the RNA mu- immunizations that were developed and tested in less than a year?
2: I also will say that I've been thinking a lot about um, nucleic acid vaccinations. So when I was a graduate student, I um, this makes me feel really sad. Uh, I started my PhD project almost 20 years ago. <laughs> um, we were actually looking at using DNA vaccines at that point in time. And so I've been thinking about nucleic acid vaccination for a very long time. Uh, the first uh, nucleic acid vaccines went in, in terms of mRNA vaccines, um, went into human clinical trials in 2013. And there have been about 1,400. Um, patients who have received them in human clinical trials since then. It's just that there hasn't been quite as much um, money and push, impetus towards uh, making some of those vaccines and getting them done quickly. So your traditional vaccines either involve an attenuated uh, or inactivated pathogen. So either a version of the pathogen that has been mutated so that it can't cause disease, so that it's weakened, or that has been killed or made unable to reproduce. Talking about whether or not something is killed gets tricky with viruses. Yeah, yeah I, I avoid it at all costs. <laughs> yes, so unable to reproduce and un- is usually where I go um, with inactivated viruses. The idea in both of those cases is that the entire microbe is being uh, used But it's being used in a way that it's been modified so that it is uh, safe and unable to cause disease. And then your immune system is going to see all different parts of that microbe and make antibody responses and T cell responses um, to the microbe in the same way that it would naturally um, to uh, lead to a response um, so that you'll get a memory response, which is faster and bigger um, and more effective should you ever be. Infected with the real pathogen. What we've realized since then is that the immune system usually only repl- responds to kind of some portions um, of the pathogen. Um, and maybe uh, there is one protein that um, involves a lot of the responses. In the case of the coronaviruses, it's been known to be the spike protein for uh, quite a while. And so you could either use the protein, um, which was the original idea. The hepatitis B and the HPV vaccines um, that are used in the United States both involve a protein being made in the lab, um, just that one protein from the virus, um, and inoculated it into you so that you can uh, make an immune response in an even safer way because you're not even using the full virus in the lab. You're just using that one protein. We take that a step further with the nucleic acid based vaccines, where we are injecting mRNA um, that encodes for that protein so that a small number of cells that receive the mRNA, so at the site of injection, so it's not all the cells of your body, it's, I don't know, 20 cells. I made that number up, that get the mRNA um, when you inject it, will start making that protein. And that will be enough to show immune cells and produce your immune response. This
1: is a good place to stop for a moment and take a break. We're talking
2: with Dr. Brianne Barker from
1: Drew University about the cellular immune responses specifically to COVID-19, but I'm going to ask for other ones in a bit. And we'll be back in just a moment.
3: Once available, your company or organization can absolutely benefit from more COVID-19 compliance with the vaccine. But will your employees get the jab or follow the guidance from some wacky website? Broad vaccination benefits everyone, and it's critical to returning our economies to normal, one business at a time. Plus, it's good for a healthy community. But vaccine hesitancy is still very real and threatens our economies and communities. Dr. Kevin Fulta and Dr. Asha Bruni have developed a COVID-19 communications program to inspire vaccination through education. This one-hour empowering seminar gives your colleagues or employees the tools they need to effectively communicate the pandemic's realities and remedies with their family and friends. It is a train the trainers event, deputizing your employees to take leadership roles in curbing the pandemic. The program covers communication strategies, why the vaccine is necessary and the benefits that come from a healthy and vaccinated population. Plus, your questions are answered. The presentation has already been presented to over 10,000 people in leading corporations and municipalities. For more information, check out the COVID-19 Communications tab on com. And now back to this week's podcast.
0: Now
1: we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Brianne Barker from Drew University, who's talking about cellular immunity as it relates to COVID-19 and immune responses to vaccines. So you talked about uh, the spike protein and how, you know, we know most of the vaccines that have been made, if not all of the vaccines that are in the pipeline right now, are really targeting that spike protein. Um, why is that the most obvious candidate? And are there any other candidates that you think would be Useful to consider.
2: So that's a really interesting question. The spike protein um, is on the surface of the virus, and it is well described as an important uh, target for antibodies. And it that's been known in a number of different coronaviruses in the past. Um, And so they knew that um, in a vaccine that was meant to protect you, an immune response. antibody response to spike seemed to be very helpful. And so they went ahead with a vaccine based on spike. Um, at TWIV, we were what critical of that. Um, I was actually very scared of this idea of all of the vaccines being targeted at spike um, at first glance. And then the more I learned about um, this, the more I was okay with it. Um, the thing that I was really worried about was whether or not spike would also induce a good T cell response. Um, I said, I thought that because this was a protein that could induce nice antibody responses, that didn't tell us anything about T cells. And we probably needed to have a good T cell response to make an effective vaccine. What I later learned as I learned more about spike is that spike is an incredibly large protein. Um, It's almost 1300 amino acids long. And, as a result, yeah, that's huge. Um, and as a result, it has, uh, it's large enough that it contains some epitopes, some portions that can be recognized by T cells that can be presented on MHC and recognized by T cells, in addition to the antibody epitopes that it has. And so once I learned how large Spike was, I felt much better. Um, when we look at uh, infected individuals, we do see a um, a good number of uh, T-cell responses to spike that are made naturally. There are a fair number of T-cell responses made to some other proteins, especially one called N or nucleocapsid. Um, And so maybe in the future, somebody could include nucleocapsid, but spike has so many epitopes given its size um, that I'm less concerned
1: So an epitope is the part of the protein that is recognized by either antibodies or T-cells. And the larger the proteins, the more possible epitopes there are.
2: Exactly. That's exactly correct.
1: And so then I would actually like this to lead into into, um, at least a couple of other issues that I wanted to bring up. And one of those is that there's a lot of fear right now about different variants notice that I don't say strain, um, different, <laughs> <laughs> different variants of the virus, that, and we expect different various, variants. This is an RNA virus, generally evolves faster than DNA viruses, and we have m- literally millions of people making billions of viruses. There will be, we will expect sequence variation. But there is some concern that some of the new variants that are coming up might potentially be more easily transmissible. But that, for our purposes, doesn't really matter because you avoid transmission the same way. You wear masks and you keep your distance from people. But one concern is is that potentially it would
2: maybe make vaccines less effective. Um, Is that a valid concern? There has been uh, a fair amount of research into that. People have looked both at the antibody have really looked at the antibody responses and there is one, uh, change, uh, in the South African strain that changes one epitope, um, that looks at antibody responses a bit. Um, although it does not eliminate it completely, but all of the rest of the epitopes stay the same. Um, and even if, um, this were to become a problem, it doesn't really look like it's going to be a problem right now. Um, One of the benefits of having an mRNA vaccine is that it is very easy to um, make some changes in the sequence and um, modify the vaccine to take those things into account. Um, And so that's not particularly worrisome. In the case of T cells, I haven't seen any data on changes in T cell reactivity. But that would be an incredibly challenging experiment to do because each individual um, has a different MHC. And so the uh, particular epitopes that I might make when responding to SARS-CoV-2 differ from the ones that you might uh, target um, because we have different MHCs. And so as a result, as the virus uh, mutates, there's no way that it can mutate around all of our MHC um, and change in a way that all of us uh, can um, be worried. And so we're not really worried about it escaping T-cells because it's not possible to escape everyone's T-cells all at once.
1: Right. And my, my thinking was also, you know, these epitopes, they're not like magical places on a protein. These are um, st- little short strings of amino acids on this larger protein, but that determines the shape of the protein, which also allows it to bind to the cell receptor in humans. So if all those epitopes change, doesn't the shape of the protein changed so much that maybe it can't bind to the receptor at all anymore. I mean, it's
2: something, you know, something's got to give. The virus can't have it, can't have it all the way. Yeah, e- exactly. And there are tons of cases um, where a virus is structurally constrained and can't change epitopes um, because it would stop working as a virus. Right. So, okay, so that puts our mind at ease, I hope. And then in addition, because we're
1: making RNA vaccines, if there is indeed a change, it's relatively easy to to take that into account and just tell the machine, make slight changes here and there. And I think I read today that one of the vaccine producers is actually sort of keeping that in mind as as a booster. Um, The other thing I wanted you to touch on just a little bit is about if there is any potential for cross-reactivity between um, the T cell responses with uh, the the common cold coronaviruses or other coronaviruses? And and what is the significance of that? And maybe you can actually explain what cross-reactivity is, because here I'm throwing out that term as if everybody knows what
2: that is. Of course. So um, this coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 is, of course, part of this family of coronaviruses that contains um, SARS-CoV, the original, um, and MERS-CoV, but also four other coronaviruses that infect humans and cause the common cold. Um, There have been some questions about whether immunity to one of those um, common cold viruses might change your immune response to uh, SARS-CoV-2. It's And so it's a little difficult to figure that out because more than 90% of people who are uh, alive have been infected with those common cold coronaviruses. We don't have a lot of people who have never had them for comparison purposes. Um, But um, it sort of never really looked like there was much cross-reactivity with the antibodies. And so that might mean that there were some amino acids on one of the common cold coronaviruses in common with SARS-CoV-2 so that an antibody could bind to both. And perhaps that might imply that your past infection with some common cold coronaviruses might influence your immune response to the um, SARS-CoV-2. We really haven't seen that with antibody responses. But it is somewhat poorly defined in terms of T cell responses, and there may be some cross-reactive responses. Um, That could be really helpful in helping us to understand the importance of T cell responses and perhaps some of the variation that we see in different individuals um, in the response that they're uh, making to SARS-CoV-2 based on past exposures. it also could help us think about more broadly how we might protect against coronaviruses in general. Um, this is the third uh, coronavirus that has emerged from animals in the past 30 years. It's been, you know, one every 10 years for the past um, while. And so um, we might want to be thinking more broadly about these viruses in the future and understanding their immune responses so that we understand how to protect against the next one that might come around later.
1: That's funny that you would bring that up, because when I was actually a guest on this podcast a few episodes ago, I was talking about you know SARS, about COVID-30 to 2030 and COVID-2040. Exactly. And and that does not mean that I'm implying that um, people are going to purposely leak viruses from laboratories, but that the the, the zoonotic movement, sort of the movement of viruses from animals to people is normal, and that as we encroach on the nor- natural habitats of bats, for example, that this, this is actually more likely to happen and not less likely. Um, uh, you actually mentioned this paper also in a TWIV where they found in like one cave more than two hundred or two hundred sixty new diff- new
2: viruses. But... Yes. Um, so one of the things that I you know try to tell my students is that we have only discovered um, the minor the vast minority of viruses that actually are in existence, and so when we do things like go sample. Um, some certain caves or things like that, we often um, can find many new viruses that could lead to potential infections. And so um, these viruses are out there and trying to make sure we understand immune responses and how to protect against them now is, a, is an important thing to know.
1: The other thing is that um, in, in normal, you know, traditional inactivated vaccines that we often really focus on that antibody response. Uh, uh, there was if I remember correctly, some evidence that the RNA vaccines are actually really good at also um, triggering that cellular response by, you know, measuring CD4 and CD8 uh, cells um, in these people. Can you talk a little bit about that evidence?
2: Sure. So in the sort of earlier, uh, trials like the phase one and phase two data from uh, the Pfizer and Moderna, they do show both the antibody data and their T cell response data. And in general, uh, the idea with nucleic acid vaccines has been that they would induce a good T cell response because the proteins are being made inside of cells, um, thus allowing them access to um, the MHC presentation pathway pretty easily. Um, In the Moderna and Pfizer data that uh, we've seen, they saw good CD8 T-cell responses as measured by um, how many CD8 T-cells made interferon gamma in response to peptides from SARS-CoV-2. And they also saw good CD4 T-cell responses, specifically a type of CD4 T-cell called a TH1 cell that makes a particular um, array of cytokines. Um, And it seems as though a Th1 type of CD4 response is quite protective against viral infection. Um, Some people were afraid that maybe the wrong type of CD4 response might be made. But in fact, Um, the TH1 response, which is the ideal type, um, was made in high amounts. So yay, right? Exactly. (laughs) Um,
1: So right now, everybody is being advised, even after immunization, even after the second dose, to continue wearing a mask because we have no evidence that... We don't have clear evidence or enough evidence that being immunized prevents you from spreading the virus. Would you expect, and I understand this is entirely hypothetical, okay, but I'm imagining here, and correct me where my thinking is wrong, that if there is a good T cell response, that the T cells are actually killing the cells that are infected, that those cells are not available for making more virus, would we expect a lower number of viruses produced in those patients and uh, in those people? Um, And thereby, so even if they are infected, that their T cell response would prevent replication of the virus by killing the infected cells, and therefore would those people be less likely to spread? Is that what you would expect?
2: That That is exactly what I am sort of hypothesizing, and what I would expect goes on, that individuals may get infected, but because they have a good T cell response, they may not have enough virus to actually be able to transmit, um, and studies looking at that very thing are ongoing right now.
1: Okay, thank you so much for talking to us about the T cell response in response to COVID-19 and in response to the immunization. One other thing I wanted to actually, actually, just think about it, I wanted to discuss two more things with you. Um, I wanted to talk about why it's so important that um, there is like a three to four week gap in between the first and second immunizations. And, you know, I guess we'd like to talk a bit about the
2: primary and secondary immune response. Sure. Um, So when we think about B cell and T cell responses, um, or the adaptive immune responses, uh, we know that the responses are better the second time around in terms of quantity and in terms of response quality. This is because the cells have differentiated, um, as I sometimes tell my students, they've grown up, um, to become a type of cell called a memory cell. And memory cells have different Um, capacities to respond than do the original cells, the naive cells that we start with. What we want to see with our vaccine is we need to get a number of responding cells um, and a a quality of those responding cells that's over a certain threshold level um, in order to get a good response. And you want those cells to be able to live for a long time. Uh, The best way of doing that is making sure that not only do you turn on some naive cells and let them turn into memory cells, but that you also can stimulate some memory cells so that those memory cells get some practice um, and are able to fully differentiate into their best possible response. And so that second dose has to happen um, when you have some cells that are memory cells, so they're ready to respond as memory cells. Um, You need to wait for that to happen. You also need to wait for some parts of the initial response to um, get reduced a bit. This part is slightly more controversial um, in terms of exactly how much it's gone down at weeks three and four. Uh, But in any case, the cells are not memory cells. And they need to be memory cells uh, in order to get the full effect of that boost, which is why you need to wait for that three or four weeks. And so if you were to wait five weeks, that's not necessarily a bad thing
1: because you're more likely to actually have have been past the primary immune response, except for the fact that, of course... Until you get that vaccine and a couple of weeks after, you're still more susceptible, more likely to contract the virus.
2: Exactly. If you look at those uh, phase one and phase two papers from Pfizer and Moderna that I mentioned, um, the size of the immune response is dramatically improved Mm -hmm. with that second dose. Um, The second dose really improves the immune response a lot. And so you want to get yourself into that improved immune response category as soon as you possibly can that would be why i would worry about 5 weeks cool thank you so much and so now i really want to
1: stop talking about covid-19 and and <laughs> and maybe talk sort of in general a little so that this this relatively new platform that now is more widely accepted that more people would be interested in looking into um Uh, nucleic acid vaccines, such as RNA or even DNA vaccines. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what this means for immunizations against other diseases that have historically been very hard to make immunizations against, like, um, I don't know, cytomegalovirus, respiratory syncytial virus, or, you know, of course, the really big one, HIV?
2: Absolutely. So there are... um vaccines against both cytomegalovirus and respiratory syncytial virus that are mRNA vaccine uh, related um, that are in trials. um, And um, we are likely going to see uh, them moving forward. Um, And uh, in general, the idea of an mRNA vaccine platform is going to be very helpful in designing a whole new suite of vaccines um, against pathogens that we have previously really struggled to vaccinate with. Um, With HIV, we have this additional issue of trying to design epitopes, um, given the variation that we see in the virus. Um, You never know which version of the virus you might get infected with, so you need to um, really think about which part of the virus to target and... um, mRNA vaccines, of course, will allow us to potentially target that part when we are kind of more certain exactly how to do that. Um, So uh, mRNA vaccines could be a really nice platform um, for um, HIV vaccines in sort of a longer term future. In the shorter term, however, um, CMV, RSV, and some of these other pathogens that we we desperately need vaccines against um, could be... uh, pretty quickly made um, in addition you know should there be another pandemic in 10 years of whatever kind of micro um, mRNA vaccines will be able to be pretty quickly deployed against oh. that micro.
1: thank you so much I won't take up any more of your time thank you so much I really appreciate you talking to me and I will continue to be a um, faithful listener to your podcast
2: thank you so much it was really wonderful to join you Um, And this was a lot of fun.
1: I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you did, leave us a glowing review on your favorite podcast app, send your friends and family over, share it through social media, or support us with a few pennies through Patreon. You can also contact us with suggestions for future topics and guests. This Talking Biotech podcast reflects the personal and professional views of the hosts and their guests. not the views of their employers. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. We will be back next week.
3: The Talking Biotech podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests, and support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast.